0: ghouls and badass days of the world today we have a very special episode of a horror hangover and we are interviewing our co-host ryan c bradley about his debut novella saint's blood
1: thank you hello hello uh, i do have to tell you so i always thought until betsy was to the podcast you were saying badass bays like before <laughs> all else and betsy's like they're saying badass days which is way cooler, by the way, and I love and it. And
0: a badass base. But I thought you were
1: saying badass bays for the last, uh, how long have we been doing this? Six months?
0: Six months. Bring out I my base. Saying... to the yard.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought you were saying.
0: Before we delve in more into Saint's Blood, its story, the process around that, I just have to ask, how does it feel to have this book out uh, in the world?
1: It feels very good. It's selling uh, much better than I expected. Like I think I've been joking on Twitter that I would get like, six Facebook likes and my mom would buy a copy.
0: It's um, more than six.
1: <laughs> it's more than <laughs> uh, yeah I've got more than six Facebook likes and more than one book sale. I had a goal like a specific number I've met that number that I had the goal for a year in two days.
0: Wow congratulations. Yes
1: thank you it's been a wild ride. It's been much better received than I expected. I thought there's gonna be a lot of anger towards me because mm. of like the theme- themes of the book uh, like atheism republicanism. And all that stuff would, but I've received none of that and really only positive feedback.
0: So what better way to start talking about Saint's Blood than the beginning? So the opening line of Saint's Blood goes, stop me if you heard this one. An alcoholic, three rednecks and an undead saint were sitting at a bar. What made this place the perfect place to start the story? I'm
1: trying to remember when this was the opening line. So mm-hmm. I don't think it was originally the open. I think it took me a while to come up with this. Mm. The book is in some ways funny. Like, I hope it's funny, at least. Mm. And I think Richie is a very sarcastic narrator. And I think it sets up his voice really well. And I think more than anything, the voice is what's driving this book. Mm. Um, I think the tension helps too. But I think his voice is really what I think the, the best element of this book is. And I think this really establishes that. I think it also establishes really all of our players for the book, The Alcoholic, The Oakleys, and uh, St. Manuel.
0: So how would you describe your main character, Richie, who is quite the character?
1: (laughs) (laughs) An author (laughs) stand-in. Yeah, I think that Richie is is sarcastic, and I think Mm -hmm. that he's been going through a real rough patch. And I think that this happens to him at a a real low point in his life. Mm -hmm. It draws something out of him that wasn't there before It kind of hits bottom at the the beginning of the book.
0: I agree with you. Having read it and without spoiling it, it does feel like he reaches the other side of where he was at to start. And I obviously have my own interpretation as a reader. But as a writer, where do you think he gets to? Like a place of acceptance or forgiveness? Like where does he land?
1: I think he lands maybe... It's not a good place where he lands. Mm. but It's not a, a... It's a more... He's seen more, he's done more. His definition of suffering has been changed. I think I saw, I think this morning about how some people talk about the pain scale doesn't make a whole lot of sense because for some people, a three is a 10 because that's the worst they've ever experienced.
0: Oh, you mean like the one to 10 pain scale? 10 or like pain how bad it is? it? Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and I think it's stretched his definition of what a, a pain scale can be. Mm. Um, I think it's kind of changed him in a lot of other ways too. I think one of his progressions in the book is that at first he's like, he doesn't want to hurt anybody. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the book, he's willing to kill people. Mm. And so he's kind of forced through that ringer as well.
0: And what can you tell us about, since this is a horror story, the kind of suffering that Richie endures? Torture, Mm -hmm. blood
1: drawing. I think the thing that's missing in a lot of like locked room stories where a character's just locked room the whole time is the boredom of it.
0: Mm.
1: There's a lot of boredom. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So speaking of the torture and I don't want to give away what kind of torture you use, because as a horror fan as an, and as I'm sure horror listeners will agree, there's a weird kind of, I don't want to say joy, but curiosity about what kind of torture will unfold. So I don't want to spoil that. But did you look to any specific influences of how you wanted to approach writing those scenes and what kinds of torture you wanted to show and depict?
1: It came down to what grossed me out the most. I have knee pain from running. That was definitely an influence in, in, in some of it. I did also like draw diagrams and send them to friends who are not writers. Like people who are handier and better engineering, like, Hey, would uh this work? And they were like, are you okay, dude? <laughs> like, is something wrong? Like, do we need to call somebody? You just sent me this horrific diagram.
0: Was there a scene of torture that didn't make its so way into the book that originally you had set up and then it, struck out for any number of reasons
1: so nothing that i wrote i did think a lot about the stories of how the Viet Cong would torture people with splinters under the fingernails and pull Ooh. it out and then put it back in and pull it out but i didn't think the oakley's would be I think they may have heard of it, but I think they're capable of making splinters. But I just don't think they were mean enough to to do that.
0: Well, of all the Oakleys, Eve certainly has a capacity for uh, <laughs> for yes, some vengeance. Yeah. <laughs> I really, really enjoy, too, that, uh, well, before we get into Eve's character, what can you tell us about the Oakleys? The, like, quote-unquote rednecks that are self-aware of that title throughout the story.
1: Yeah, so they are a family who's also kind of at bottom. Mm -hmm. but the goal was to at least have them have a a relatable motivation for what they were Mm -hmm. doing. They make some decisions that force
0: some things. Yeah. Hard decisions (laughs) really. uh, I will say without spoiling it, that the position they're in puts them in a desperate slash dire straits mode. And people do very strange things when they feel that desperate. So I think that definitely comes through.
1: And I think part of the dynamic of the book is the Stanford prison experiment dynamic. I don't know if you know the Stanford Mm -hmm. Prison Experiment.
0: I'm aware of it, but I think it would help for you to go into it.
1: So the the Stanford Prison Experiment was an experiment they ran at Stanford where they simulated a prison. They had some people dress up as guards and act like guards. And Mm -hmm. some people dress up like prisoners and act like prisoners. So even though no one had done anything wrong to be put in prison, they still found that like they got this super abusive dynamic between the guards and the prisoners eventually. I think that's part of the dynamic of this book as well. The Oakleys is the guard and Richie is the prisoner. I think part of it is just when you have someone chained up into a bed, even if your motivations aren't the world's most evil thing, you're still going to end up there.
0: They make this choice to cover their face in prison masks of presidents, which I thought was so interesting. We have a Reagan and Nixon mask and a Trump mask. So I'm curious about where that idea came from for you to have them hide their faces behind these infamous, and maybe I should say, (laughs) roles.
1: So great question. The Republican masks things came a lot from uh, one. I think it's great and point break, which I hadn't actually seen at the time when, when I wrote the book. Mm. I knew about it, but I hadn't seen it yet. But I think it's, it was a symbolic move about the way our country has kind of been ransacked
0: mm. over the
1: last 50, 60 years. But Nixon did a lot to establish like the war on drugs, which was really-
0: uh, War on Black people.
1: A war on Black people, yeah. yeah. Um, and Reagan, I saw this meme about how like if you take like any economic chart of the last 50 years and you put a line where Reagan became president and changed all these rules and stuff, like the everything is worse for everybody except for mega corporations Mm. see I picked those two for those reasons and Trump because I started writing this book in like 2016 I don't know that I had a specific reason for giving um, Nixon and uh, Reagan out yeah but I very much picked Eve to be Trump because she was the meanest
0: yeah I felt like a lot of catharsis you know having the most violent and like I guess self-assured character be the same one wearing the Trump mask <laughs> I thought yes. that was like a great choice
1: well Richie's my favorite character but Eve is my next and mm. she was inspired there was an article in the sports section of the Connecticut Post maybe 15 years ago about the Jets center at the time Nick Mangold had a sister who was playing high school football and the I don't know if they interviewed him or the coach or her but whoever they interviewed said like they're about the same size they lift about the same amount of weight but she's Mm -hmm. meaner and that line just stuck with me I I think it made it into the book almost as is yeah Um, but that's kind of where the inspiration for her came from hearing about this like Nick Mangold's sister is as big and as strong as him but meaner
0: speaking of richie as someone that knows you really well there are some similarities as far as like tiny character details that we all do as writers honestly when we have a protagonist so i'm curious what advice do you have for people that flesh out protagonists in a similar way where it's like obviously this character is not me but i'm putting in a little bit of like things I've been through to get at their emotional core. I wouldn't worry
1: about it. I think I would yeah. just like, when someone asked me when I was writing the book, what I was gonna say, I was like, strip mining my, my mental health struggles to, to write a book. That's <laughs> what they, I told them, what, that's what I was working on. And that's what I was doing in a lot of ways. Mm. I would say like, you can't reuse the incidents. So just be careful, um, but put as much of yourself in as you want. Because like, you're my friend. So you recognize a lot of this stuff. But I've had readers who don't know me read it. I don't know like exactly what their actions are. But I imagine they're thinking like, wow, what a well-drawn out, real feeling character. (laughs) I hope that's what they're saying. Of course they are. Of course they are. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I would say just use what you got to use. And no one yet has been like, "Is this detail true about your life. Mm. No one's, I haven't gone through that yet. And if you do it good enough and you blend it well enough, there's no line mm. between like what is real and what isn't. Mm. Uh, but in this book, I think a lot of the my approach was just like, what would I do if this happened to me? Mm. And that was a lot of the imagination there. And I was scared when I moved to Oklahoma. So a lot of that came through. Yeah. And I, having lived in Oklahoma, I don't think it's actually like that at all. It was just my fear of the the thing.
0: In a way, Richie is definitely like a Ryan avatar in some ways, not in, not in a whole bunch of other ways. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You're not, you're not an asshole (laughs) in case anyone's wondering. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I thought was interesting too, especially because I know off mic, we've talked a lot about your Mexican ancestry. So I would love to hear a little bit more about when researching what of that put into the story, like how much of it maybe came from like anecdotes of like your own life and how much of it is fictionalized, what it felt like to write about being like a white Latino as you're like creating a character. That is a white Latino.
1: A lot of the stories in the book were stories my grandfather had told me. Yeah. And a lot of them were influenced by uh, Latin American fiction. Mm. Especially Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who I'm a big fan of. Now there's so many great Latin Americans, like Augustina of Asterica is getting translated, Mar- Mariana Enriquez. Um, I try to read as many Latino uh, or Latinx authors as I can. That's an influence. It was a scary experience. That's one of the things I'm nervous about with the, the reception of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like in a lot of ways I'm very disconnected from that culture and so I feel strange claiming it Mm -hmm. I don't know if what I'm doing is even claiming it. because I think what I'm trying to write to is the experience of a third generation person who's like I went to Mexico when I was five years old for my great-grandmother's 100th birthday we spent a week in Mexico City and then a week in Puerto Vallarta and that's really all I got and we didn't speak Spanish at home Mm. my grandfather was around but i mean he had a mexican accent and he would tell us the stories and he did have an uncle who was a saint i won't say what the saint's name is Mm. but a lot of saint manny is based on uh the real saint yeah it was frightening more than anything else Um, i'm still like a little worried about how that's going to be received uh whether people view it as authentic or not it is authentic to my experience i don't know if it's authentic to like the Mexican experience, but I don't think that there is really a the anyone experience.
0: Yeah. And I also think that as far as like what the book's aim is, like it's what you said, it's exploring Richie's disconnection to his own heritage and ancestry. There's this wonderful line in it, which I guess is a little bit of a spoiler, but he's talking about how like America is like when you're growing up, people tell you it's uh it's a mixing pot and the reality is it's like a salad bar and like, God forbid, (laughs) God forbid an olive goes next to a crouton, loser fucking shit. (laughs) It does a great job of just presenting like, this is my lived experience written by an author who shares a similar experience. And just saying like, isn't this also important to talk about that? Like the dissolution of culture is sad. And I don't have more to go on than that, but like that is enough to, to talk about, you know? So I feel like it's important. So I'm sure there's plenty of other people that feel similarly about being like white passing.
1: I do also wonder like I'm third generation Irish too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think about that at all.
0: Like you don't feel like you need to qualify what makes you Irish or not. Yeah, well, I also, I look
1: very Irish. Like, if you look at me (laughs) with the curly hair and the the very pale skin, you're like, that's an Irish man. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So maybe that's what it is. Like, I'm not reading a bunch of Irish authors. I do read some Irish authors. Um, Sally Rooney's great, and Normal People was very, very good, the TV show and the book. But I'm not, like, chasing... Irish culture and trying to connect with it. So I'm not sure why that is.
0: Yeah, I mean that's an interesting thing to think about. I wonder if it's because, well, growing up in Connecticut, maybe there's just more Irish culture around in general. So it wasn't yeah. something that you really had to search out for. So it was almost like if it could keep this salad bar metaphor going, it's like there was always <laughs> lettuce around. Like you're not a yeah. lettuce. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's explored in a really empathetic way. And similarly, I think you do a good job with showing lower income southern rural humans without like denigrating them you know which i think is important especially as someone who lives with a southerner like i we have so many conversations (laughs) about the quote-unquote like dumb hit coming in and it's like it's so exhausting for like him to see and so we've talked a lot about that Uh, so i thought it was really important that the story spent some time in mary's pov to kind of show her worldview whether or not it's right, but just to give her more depth as the one of the main characters that comes to be in the story. Uh, she is two sections. I won't say where, but yeah. what inspired you to, to have her voice in there to break up Richie's story? There's two
1: sections. Both came at, I think, very important junctures in the story. Mm-hmm. The first one puts in, together the, the motion to end the first act. And the second one is in the climax of the book. And I think we need to see her there because we need to see what she's going through. Mm. I think it's really important to show her anguish in that moment.
0: Well, she and the book tackles uh, religion in an interesting way. I would love to know, how did you cherry pick which Bible verses to use?
1: I use them kind of as necessary. Once in an all boys Catholic high school, which is a very weird, very misogynist experience. I know a bunch of Bible verses from that. Mm. So I kind of just like, took as as needed. Um, I didn't really put a whole lot of thought into like, which ones am I going to take? Which ones am I not going to take? When I felt like I needed one and I had the right one, I threw it in.
0: How would you say growing up in an all-boy Catholic school informed the way you wrote Richie? Because one thing I noticed that came up a bunch, which I love that it did, is Richie is very concerned with consent. And I just thought that was such an interesting detail and I hadn't connected it before, but When you're talking about the misogyny of an all-boy Catholic school and and what's acceptable there, I imagine consent wouldn't be on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Well,
1: I think so. The all-boys Catholic school and misogyny, it's just a lot of like, I mean, you've met high school boys, the (laughs) the way they were in the 2000s and in high school, 2000s and 10s.
0: Yeah, the weird Um, American high generation.
1: Yeah, so I think it's different now. So I'm talking to like some of my younger cousins and they're way cooler than we were. Way less homophobic and way less like misogynist, um, which is great, but things are getting better. But like when I went to high school, it was like very bad. The bad F word got thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. It was a very homophobic environment. And the misogyny was just kind of everywhere because there was like, if you were in my situation I think I've written about this before, it's like the only women in my life were my sister who was younger, and my mom so i had that sitcoms and sitcoms are not a good place a lot of seinfeld which i love seinfeld but yeah it's not the most great with that so you do this you see all that and then the kids would come in and be like this girl's flashing her pussy on the steps steps when we were hanging out i was like what like i what? haven't seen a woman in two years so is... <laughs> and if you talk about it and they talk about, like the things they did yeah i'm gonna superman that hoe, which that was the shit people were talking about and it's like one now that i'm like 32 like, i don't think most of those guys having sex.
0: Oh, yeah, no, those were the boys that actually did put their dick in an apple pie, but that's about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, um uh, that's pretty much the, the, the impression I get. But yeah, consent became important to me later on because like I went to college. I met people. I think like you can disable misogyny very quickly if you just have like deep conversations with women. Because mm-hmm. you realize like well they're not all the same. <laughs> they're not all like one thing. Because I think that's where a lot of like misogyny racism it's this like myth of the the monolith, and people mm-hmm. are like I can't figure women out. And it's like maybe you should try to figure out an individual person, and then you would not have this big struggle. Mm-hmm. And then consent became like a big thing in the the national conversation in like 2000. Maybe it just became a big thing in the conversation I was part of because I was mm-hmm. the Catholic. Always our sex education was. Uh, We had one teacher who talked to us in a basement classroom once a week. I don't remember him ever talking about sex, but we watched St. Elmo's fire and the class was called life choices. (laughs) And it was just bizarre. Um, And I was talking to some of my friends who went to the school too about it. And we're like, what did we do in there? I remember once this kid rolled his eyes at the teacher and the teacher looked at him and was like, I want you to go on a date with a girl you really like. And then do that face to her. It was bizarre. <laughs> I don't know how we received credit for that class. College was like a lot of conversations about consent. And just, it seems mm-hmm. really important. And I wanted to make Richie a, a good dude. So that's kind of why he talks about it a lot.
0: There's a yeah. character in the beginning of the story named Lynn, who I love. It reminds me so much of the Tam. when we were little babes at Emerson College. And we would hang out at this spot called the Tam, which is still there. And they would pour drinks like way too too hard. <laughs>
1: it was the best.
0: It was the best. best. It was cheap. (laughs) All the writers would go there, talk shop. And so it just gave me such fond memories of that time period in our lives. Do you remember
1: that Dennis Johnson story we read? Jesus' uh, son. Jesus' son. Yeah. Where the bartender pours the liquor straight to the rim and then he says, she was our mother.
0: Yes. (laughs) Is that the inspiration for Lynn?
1: (laughs) So the the Tam is the inspiration for Lynn. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, She's absolutely inspiration Um, she got to know me not by name but she'd like when I came in she would point at me and say whiskey and coke like yeah
0: you touched on this a little bit already but there is definitely some really gorgeous scenes of magical realism there's uh, I will tease and say there's a lovely passage about a mango there's also entities let's say that appear so I would love to hear a bit about what were maybe some rules you had about how these unreal beings would work in your story
1: so there's really one unreal being. I don't know that I thought it through in terms of rules.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: did think about like, cause he's kind of set up in stories of the past and he doesn't do anything in the present that he doesn't do in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really, so I didn't think in terms of rules. I thought just, I had to introduce anything he would do in the present before he would do it.
0: That's funny that you said there's only one unreal entity. There's a moment where there's fever dream like scenes happening. And I read them as being like ghosts, like actual ghosts, as opposed to just fever dreams, which I think is a f- fun way to also like think about right. it. But it sounds like that was not your intent.
1: No, but I, I'm always on the team of like- More ghosts? author's intent, um, so, <laughs> but more ghosts, yeah. But I think author's intent doesn't mean anything once the book mm-hmm. is out in the world. It's mm-hmm. only the impact that matters then. Your intent is when you're workshopping, when you're working, you try to get it across, but whatever you got across at the time the book's published, that's, that's what it is.
0: Yeah, now that this book is out in the world, what are you most looking forward for people to maybe be talking about in the book or uh, of the book?
1: Great question. I think the, the myth of Sisyphus thing is the thing that I hope people really do because I think that's kind of my life philosophy is that life is suffering and what we have to do is find a way to take joy in our suffering. That's from Camus. It really stuck with me over the last 15 years since I read it.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to tease about the book or say about the book before we close out our chat?
1: Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks everybody everybody who, who's bought a copy already and who plans to buy a copy. And I'm very grateful and I'm, I'm super grateful to everyone who has helped me along the way.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, Ryan, for <laughs> sitting in the interviewee chair this time to talk all about your work, which is a huge treat for me.
1: Yes, I can't wait till I'm interviewing you about your work uh, when your book eventually comes out.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, nothing is in the fire just yet. But as someone who's read many of your stories and had a lot of TAM conversations around them, (laughs) I'm just so proud and truly, truly, truly touched uh, that we had this time to chat about this. And I can't wait to see more good things come your way.
1: Thank you.